be seated. As we continue to seek the Lord and to praise the Lord this morning, we, we do so now through the preaching of the Word. So open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3 this morning as we come to the final of the seven letters to the seven churches. We have now made our way through each and every individual one, and we, we, we come now to the final of them, Christ's letter to the church at Laodicea. And lest we think that these are but a closing remark or maybe putting a cap on things, uh, let me prepare you. This is actually probably, this is actually the most sobering of all of Christ's messages to his churches. You know, we've seen some pretty staggering messages that Christ has given, you know, whether it be dealing with, I love you, I see your works, I see what you're doing, your activity, your high activity, but you've lost your first love. Repent. We've seen him deal with the realities of compromise in the life of the church. Your, your, your activity, you're doing all kinds, you're gathering together in my name, but nonetheless, your heart is compromised. You're, you're seeking Christ plus other things. And there's been very stern warnings, stern rebukes that Christ has made to the seven churches. But we come this morning to the final of them, and it, it could be that this is kind of speaking certainly to the church at Laodicea, but as it speaks to all Christians in all places and all ages, it, the message is kind of this. As Christ speaks to us through the seven letters, he's, there's no one church that's going to identify, that we're going to identify with. Uh, no one's going to walk out of here, either corporately or individually, and, and say, uh, well, the church at Smyrna, that's me. Or the church at Pergamum, that's me or the church at Ephesus, that's me. Rather, the idea here is all of these churches are speaking to realities that are true of us. We find bits and pieces of all of these churches in us. If we're honest, if we have ears to hear, if Christ is so gracious as to help us to see uh, the sin in our own lives. As we come to this last letter, as the church at Laodicea has already listened to each of the previous six letters, and probably said, amen. Amen what you said about the church at Ephesus. Amen what you said about the church at Smyrna and Thyatira and Pergamum. But they did not hear Christ was speaking to them. They kept Christ at arm's length. They didn't hear the voice of Christ speaking to them. And in this letter, Christ kind of exposes that. And it is the sternest, most sobering of warnings. We pray that God would give us ears to hear. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire 
so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And to the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know, it's an interesting thing how God has made us and created us, particularly our mouths, our lips, our tongues, the taste buds that are on our lips. Just one bite And unless your taste buds have been dulled over time, just one bite, you realize when you put something in your mouth, and it's not good. A few weeks ago, I was sitting down at a restaurant. I ordered scrambled eggs. It's a little country place. It comes to me, and okay, I see the eggs there. And what appear to be little chunks of ham in there as well. I'm thinking, well, this is a nice little country place, and they've kind of spruced up their ham, I mean, their, uh, their eggs a little bit and put some ham in there. So I, I put it in my mouth and immediately realize, mm-mm, <laughs> this ain't eggs, and that is certainly not ham. And I put it into the, I, I'm, I'm with somebody, and I don't want to be embarrassed myself by spitting it out in front of them, and I don't want to be that person who just orders something, takes a bite, and just doesn't eat it. So I'm, I'm shoving it in a little bit. And I bite down on something crunchy. And I'm starting to wonder, who made this back there? What are they, what, what's going into it? I bit down again, another something crunchy. At this point, I took the time to pull out and just see, what am I biting into? It looked like a hard piece of plastic. If you want to know the whole story, get with me afterwards. I'm not going to take any further time. Here's what I found out. I was eating pork brains. It was not scrambled eggs. One, one taste to my lips. I knew that was not scrambled eggs. And you're the same way. One sip of milk, and we immediately know if it's sour. One bite of chicken, and we know mm -mm, it's not done. It's too greasy. It's It's too gelatinous in the middle. You understand that, that with a bite like that, man, there could be all kinds of diseases, there could be all kinds of, so you, you spit it out or you get rid of it or if you're polite, you put it into a napkin, right? And you, you put it down into your pocket. You, you do, but we know instantly, immediately when we put something in our mouth and it's just not right. Well, if our taste buds are that sensitive, what we need to know as we come into Revelation chapter three this morning, Our Lord Jesus Christ has the most spiritually sensitive taste buds ever. And one of the things we discover in this church to Laodicea is that as Jesus walks among his churches, right? We've seen that in every one of these seven letters. He's walking among his churches. He's tasting of them, the flavor of the church. As he comes to Laodicea, this church has a different church, different flavor from all the other churches, And and we understand that. If if we visit different churches, we we realize that each church has its own flavor. The preaching has its own flavor. The teaching has its own flavor. If you meet some of the members, they have their own flavor. Uh, Their service, their style of music will have its own flavor. And Jesus also understands that every church has its own distinctive taste. And so it was at Laodicea. 
and but one taste as he walks among the church at Laodicea, he provides these memorable words, Revelation chapter 3, verse 15. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. This is not just commentary. This is not just a, 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 a Christian going around visiting different churches and saying, I, I like this. I, I didn't like that. I'm going to go visit over here. I like this. This is, go back to verse 14, the words of the amen. This is how Jesus introduces himself to the church at Laodicea. He knows he's about to bring to them stern words of rebuke. He says, let me make sure I'm not just a visitor to your church, and I'm just kind of, I'm testing the waters, I'm kind of seeing the flavor. I am the amen, the true. What I say to you about what I taste is God's own words to you about what I taste. I am the faithful and true witness. I cannot lie about what I'm saying. And as he comes, he says to them, when I taste your fellowship, let me put it this way. Instead of discovering the comfort that I would hope to receive, and, and I think this will make sense, on a hot summer day, blazing sun, the refreshment I receive from a, a cool drink of water, oh, how refreshing that is. Or on a blistery cold day, a warm, hot cup of water, just the refreshment I get from that. I get none of that, that kind of refreshment when I walk among your midst. In fact, you are putrid to me. You're lukewarm. And but one taste. My instinct is to spit you out of my mouth. Well, let's get into this a little bit. Let's get into this, this first point, an unexpectedly terrifying but gracious rebuke of Jesus Christ. What is this unexpectedly terrifying but gracious rebuke of Jesus to the church at Laodicea? Well, let me first begin by what it's not. I don't think what he's talking about is he's saying, like as he said with other churches, I come and visit, I wish you were either with me or against me. You know, we've seen that compromise in other churches. Listen, are you a child of mine? I don't think that's what he's dealing with here. Rather, he's using the language here, I wish you were either hot or cold, just not lukewarm, in the way that I just referred to. Christ, when he meets with his church, is looking for refreshment. Christ is looking for blessing from his people. Christ himself is looking for the encouragement of love, devotion, hunger, and joy in him. Now, let me pause there and ask, does that sound strange to you to hear me say that? Christ gathers with his church and he himself is looking for blessing. That might sound a little strange to us. Isn't Christ the one who blesses us? Kind of the, that's the mindset we have, and he does. Christ blesses us. Uh, isn't Christ self-sufficient? Meaning he doesn't need anything from us. So what exactly is he looking for? Why is he looking for anything? And the answer to that is this. Because he's worthy. Because of who he is, because of what he's done. Is he self-sufficient? Absolutely he is. And he knows his value. He knows his worth. Christ is not an idolater. 
He doesn't see value in other things above himself. He knows he is the high, the holy, the transcendent, the righteous, the merciful, the gracious revelation of God to his people. And when he gathers with his people, he expects there will be adoration, praise, worship, love, hunger, thirst, a seeking after him. Psalm 103. The psalmist urges us, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. We've used this language our whole life, but if you're like me, maybe we've never thought to think about that. When Christ meets with his people, he's looking for blessing. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. We just saw in Psalm 113 in our prayer time this morning. Praise the Lord from the rising of the sun to the setting. From this point forward, evermore. Praise the Lord. He's looking for that. And what does it mean to bless the Lord anyway? We use that kind of language, Lord, I bless you. It means ultimately to speak well of him. To speak well of his goodness. To speak well of his greatness. To speak well of the God that he is in transcendent glory. To bless the Lord is almost synonymous with praise. To praise the Lord. Psalm 34.1 brings these two ideas together, blessing and praise. I will bless the Lord at all times. Semicolon. His praise shall continually be upon my lips. To bless the Lord is to praise the Lord, to exalt the Lord, to make much of Him, make everything of Him. Blessing the Lord means speaking and singing and praying about the goodness and the greatness and the holiness and the mercy of our Lord. Magnifying Jesus Christ for all that he is and all that he's done. Now it might be when Laodicea hears Jesus' words here, they might say, whoa, whoa, Jesus. Wait a minute, have you not been paying attention? You're walking in our midst. We just sang Christian songs. We had the words right up here. And in our prayer time this morning, many of our prayers were direct quotes from Psalm 113. And here we are, Bible open to Revelation chapter 3. Hold your horse, Jesus. What do you mean? What do you mean you were neither hot nor cold, but lukewarm too, and you want to spit us out of your, out of your mouth? That's exactly what we've seen in every other church. You can have the form and have the external. And in here, be cold as ice. In here, come in and bring half-hearted worship. It's easy to do on a rainy Sunday morning like we've had this morning. I don't know about you. I had trouble getting out of bed this morning, getting myself together, get here. It can be a challenge. But Christ looks at the heart. He's looking as he walks in our midst for hearts that are captivated by him. Hearts that are magnifying Christ in his person, in his work. And when Jesus walks among the church at Laodicea and they, they're gathering, they sang, they prayed, they preached. Yet Jesus says, but I don't find sincere, honest, heartfelt, hungering and thirsting for me. So let's dive into this just a little bit. Because it's important for us to clarify what the problem is here in the church at Laodicea. 
the very easy and quick way to deal with this would be to say, well, lukewarmness is the problem. Therefore, lukewarmness means Jesus doesn't see that warmth. He doesn't see that appetite for him. Well, all right, let me kind of, let me step it up a little bit. All right, put the words back on the screen. I'll sing a little louder this time. All right, all right, from this point forward in the sermon, I'm going to pay a little bit closer attention because Jesus is here. He's looking, he's looking. The fact of the matter is we can try to elevate our emotions in worship, but it will not fix the problem that Jesus was addressing in the life of Laodicea. You see, lukewarmness was not the fundamental problem. Lukewarmness was the, the fruit It was the blossom of a deeper spiritual problem. It was the fruit of a deeper, more fundamental issue. And growing in their love for Jesus and, you know, giving it a little bit more, I mean, sure, that's great. It's not going to last very long. We'll come back in here next Sunday, same thing, same ritual, same routine. You see, the fruit, the root of their problem, which caused their lukewarmness, was pride. Pride. Laodicea was a proud church. Think about this when it comes to cooling that may take place in your marriage. When your marriage becomes lukewarm, well, lukewarmness is not the problem, is it? Um, There is something that is causing that distance, that coolness. And buying flowers and chocolates, and going out for a date night. Uh, I mean, that may put a Band-Aid over it for a few hours, but that's not going to fix the problem. And likewise, it's not going to be enough for the Laodiceans to say, okay, Jesus, we'll get serious about you. We're really going to step it up now. Let me warm my emotions for Christ. That's not going to be sufficient to fix the problem. In a lukewarm church, the issue is not lukewarmness. The problem's pride. And that's not me guessing. Verse 17. This is what Jesus says about them getting to the root of the issue. For you say, I'm rich. I've prospered. I need nothing. The church at Laodicea would have said these three fundamental things about themselves. Spiritually speaking here, I'm rich. We have everything that we need. Thank you, Jesus, you got the ball rolling for us by grace. You start, you got us on the right path. We're gathered here to praise you, to thank you for your salvation. But we're rich. Secondly, we've been prospered. God has amazingly blessed our church. we got good people, strong people, smart people, faithful people, active people. And therefore, we need nothing. What Jesus here is picking apart in Laodicea is the heart of a spiritually proud church. If at any moment we take the perspective, I love you, Lord, I lift you up, I would not be where I am right here because, except for you. That's a true statement. But if we don't cling to our hope in Christ every single moment of every single day thereafter, well, then we become self-sufficient. We feel like we've become capable. We feel like we've grown and matured, that maybe I'm above. I don't need a prayer meeting to, to go and, 
as a needy child cry out to God? I'm, I'm not needy. I, I, don't, I don't need to sit under the preaching of the word because, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty spiritual and mature. I mean, I'll come, I'll listen, I want to support, I want to be there. I mean, if I'm not there, it's going to really look empty. Um, and, and, and I really, you know, maybe I'll pick up something. Maybe Jake will say something this week. We begin to feel like, we'll, we'll acknowledge Jesus and who he is, but we feel like in here I'm, I'm capable. I'm mature. I, I don't need this. This insofar as it is connecting us to Christ. And when a person feels spiritually able, spiritually capable, spiritually, uh, I've kind of moved beyond this. That's where lukewarmness is the inevitable option. And here's what makes this so devastating. Spiritual pride in the church is almost impossible to recognize. And that's why I believe this now, the route that these letters are going, Laodicea would have been the last one, but I don't think it's by accident that this is the last letter. Because Laodicea would have heard all the previous six letters, and those six letters, though they were addressed to Pergamum and Thyatira, they were written for Ephesus as well, just as they were written for us. And spiritual pride would have said, yes, Thyatira, get them, Jesus, at Ephesus. I know who you're talking about. You're talking about, I'm just throwing out things here. You're talking about Joey Holly. You're not talking about me. You're talking about Barbara Jones. You're not talking about me. Probably everybody in the room. You're talking about that Jake guy. You ain't talking about me. And that's the danger. Spiritual pride in the church is so hard to identify because when pride comes to church, it's going to mask itself in a way that makes it difficult to spot. And here's what I mean by that. As I know this church relatively well, my observation is the manifestation of pride in this church is not going to be next Sunday Somebody pulling up in a sports car, brand new, walking in here in the newest, fattest clothes, sitting here on the front row drawing attention to themselves. I mean, that would be easy to identify. Not that a sports car is wrong, not that nice clothes are wrong, drawing attention to yourself, that is wrong. But that's not, that would be easy to recognize, wouldn't it? That's a proud person, that's a prideful person, they're into themselves. But pride comes into a church usually wearing a mask. And that mask will be crafted out of Bible phrases and religious cliches. And you'll be kind to one another and you'll be thoughtful to one another. And you'll, you'll kindly sit through a sermon and you'll nod your head in agreement at certain times. And then you'll leave this place and you'll go right back to a self-sufficient life. And there may be some Bible thrown in there, some prayer thrown in there. But Jesus is looking for, I'm everything. What I'm looking to taste from you is your praise, your worship, your adoration, your helplessness, your neediness. You're looking to me. You're clinging to me. You're hoping to me in the good and the bad. Do you see how spiritual pride can be hard to see? It'll mask itself in religion and good works and just being good, nice 
Christian folks. And I have no doubt in Laodicea, they were religious. Jesus says, I see your good works. And I have no doubt they were kind to one another. We have evidence and testimony of the spirit of Laodicea through history. That's what they would have said about themselves. We're rich. God got us here. We praise you, God. You got the ball rolling for us. And look at me now. And, and we've prospered. And we need nothing. So, spiritual pride can be very hard to see. And I think that's why he's addressing Laodicea last. Have we heard what Christ is saying to his churches? But while spiritual pride can be hard to see, the results of spiritual pride are completely transparent and evident. Whereas the church at Laodicea saw three things about themselves, Christ now comes full circle and says, let me tell you what I, the amen, the true and the faithful who cannot lie, let me tell you what five things I see when it comes to you. And as we look at them, keep in mind, not a one of these things would the Laodiceans have seen about themselves. Jesus says in verse 17, you say, I'm rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are, not realizing you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I promise you, Laodicea would have heard that, and in, instinctively there would have been that moment of shock. There would have been maybe even some aggravation, how dare you? Who are you to say? Well, again, go back to the first verse, verse 14. I am the amen, the faithful and the true. You may not like this word of rebuke. It is a terrifying rebuke. I want to spit you out of my mouth. But it is the words of the amen, the faithful and the true. And though you may not see this about yourself, I who walk in your midst, I who have tasted and have the most sensitive taste buds, spiritual taste buds, this is what I taste. You're pitiable, you're poor, you're blind, you're wretched, you're naked. It brings to mind that old story. You've heard the story of the emperor's new clothes, right? You've heard that account where we don't have time to go into all the details of it, but all in the court are dancing around celebrating the emperor's new clothes. They're marvelous. They're incredible. They're beautiful. Oh, your majesty, you look magnificent. And it was only one child, if I remember the story correctly, one child who has the courage to look the king in the face and say, King, you don't have a stitch of clothing on. Likewise, that's kind of the world that we live in today. We celebrate, man, we've been so blessed. We're so kind, we're so loving, we're so good, we're so doctrinal, we're so right. And, and listen, when, when I say those things, please don't hear me saying that there's anything wrong with those things. What Jesus is exposing here is that the external, without an internal heart of love for Jesus, doing it for him out of a desire, that's problematic. And Jesus, like that little child, and the old emperor in his new clothes story says to them, no one else is telling you this. You're wretched. 
You're pitiable. You're poor. You're blind. You're naked. You see, what he's saying is, Laodicea, you sat through six letters to six different churches. You agree, Jesus walks among their midst. He watched. You listened to them. You agreed with the message. But you denied I was talking to you. You proudly thought you're talking about somebody else or another church or, or I pointed fingers elsewhere. You proudly thought you were rich spiritually and blessed spiritually and self-sufficient spiritually and that you didn't need to hear from the king. danger for us this morning. We've come to the final of the seven letters. Now we will continue through the book of Revelation. But as we come to the final of these seven letters, might it be true of us? Have we heard Christ speak to Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum about you got all the right external activity going on, but inside, man, there's no love for me at all. Or I walk among your midst and I see, I mean, there's a, there's, a, there's a half-heartedness when it comes to me. But you've also compromised and there's also you're holding hands with the world. And on Sunday mornings you gather, it looks nice, you're religious, you look moral. But the rest of the week you live like the world. And there's been various rebukes that Christ has given to his people in these seven letters. Have we not realized Christ is talking to us. And that there will not be one church that you identify with personally. But rather, it should be all the churches we identify with. Even what we saw last week in the church at Philadelphia. Praise God for the church at Philadelphia. And I think there is wisdom of God Almighty in providing us a church where there is no rebuke. Where he says, you're on the right track. I look at you, I walk in your midst, I'm looking, I'm looking into the heart. No, you're not perfect. No, you're not where you want to be. But I look at you, you're on the right track. I pray, I pray that as we bring that to bear upon our, our lives, we see that there's, there's that footprint in our lives that Christ may say, I look at your heart. No, you're not perfect, but you're on the right track. But we also know that on that track of getting to where we want to be with Christ eternal, we're still battling the flesh. We're still battling sin. We're still battling the world around us. Temptation. And so there are Christ's word to Ephesus and Smyrna. We're still battling persecution of various kinds. I don't want to paint that too specifically because God's been gracious to us in this country in this century. But there's still a word where Christ rebukes and there's, there's opportunity to bring Christ's word to bear upon our lives and to respond, to repent as he's instructed to. We come to this last letter, and I think the message is Covenant Life Church. Christ has spoken. Are we listening? Are we hearing? Laodicea would not have liked this. They were a self-sufficient, proud, prideful people. You get two prideful people in a room, it's not going to be long before there's only one person in the room, right? In one corner you have God himself who is proud in the most holy and perfect sense of the word. 
and the church at Laodicea who thinks they are self-sufficient, they are proud, they don't need anything. And when the high and holy, eternal, proud one, who it would be idolatry if he were not proud, when he speaks a word of truth to Laodicea, you think they liked it? No more than we, our proud selves, like it when our pride gets exposed. So why does Jesus do it? Why does Jesus do it? Verse 19, he tells us. Oh, the way I ought to see it. Your feelings are hurt. Oh, I pray you have ears to hear. But know this, verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. And this is Christ's great burden. Christ owns the church at Laodicea. We talked about this in one of the previous churches. Who owns this church? Who Christ does. Christ owns the church. Why? He purchased us. How? With his blood, with his life, with his death, with his resurrection. He has every right to expect from us that he is everything to us. And the church at Laodicea was giving kind of a head nod. Hey, Jesus, yes, you got us started right. But look at us now. We're capable, self-sufficient. Look, we're religious. Look at the songs we're singing. Look at the, uh, did, you, did, you, did you catch the prayer meeting this morning, Jesus? Did you hear how, how, how sober that was? And the sad thing is, the taste they left in the mouth of the Savior was one of lukewarmness. So Christ who purchased them comes and rebukes them. Not because he's a mean ogre, but because he loves them. This is the terrifying but gracious rebuke of King Jesus to the church at Laodicea and to any of us this morning who may have drifted into spiritual pride. We'll be careful. It's hard to recognize. We will probably give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. Don't. Don't. Ask God to show you what he sees and to expose that pride. That brings us to the second thing, Christ's urgent counsel to this church. His urgent counsel. This is beautiful because this is counsel from the same lips that just moments ago said, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. And what does he say? This loving counsel, verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me. I counsel you, buy from me. Not because it costs money. He's, he's keeping in, in theme with Laodicea and their, their pride and their monetary system. Buy from me, what? Gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Three things. Go, buy from me. Come to me, Laodicea, and all your pride and self-sufficiency and your capabilities, and you're above all this, and you don't need this. Repent. Come to me. Buy from me gold refined with fire, spiritual wealth that you cannot attain yourself. The New Testament is replete with testimony of the 
riches that are ours in Christ Jesus. No other way. Eternal riches that neither tarnish nor fade nor rust nor, nor can be taken away. They can't be stolen from us. They're ours only in Jesus Christ. White garments to cover their nakedness. What's talking about? Righteousness. Oh, Laodicea, Laodicea, Laodicea. You have the audacity to say, thank you, Jesus, you got, us, you got the ball rolling, but now we are capable, now we are righteous, now we are holy, now we are religious. Oh, Laodicea, you have no idea how holy your God is. You think you can muster up Christ plus some combination of good works, good religion, niceness, pleasantries, and make yourself acceptable before God. You come to me and buy the white garments to cover your nakedness. It's the only way. And eye salve for the restoration of their vision. Medication for their vision. They've lost sight of who God is. They've lost sight of God's perspective on things. They've taken on the Laodicean view of the world and influence and power and prestige and capabilities. And they've kind of, there's a sense of compromise there as well that has created this pride, the gold, the white garment, the eye salve. Let's be very clear. What's it pointing to? Jesus. It's all pointing to Jesus. Only in Jesus will they find those true riches that never fade or rust or rot away. Only in Jesus will they find true righteousness that they can stand before God Almighty. Only in Jesus Christ Will, they be, will the scales be removed and they have eyes to see themselves and the world around them as God sees? He's pointing them to Christ. Let me quote just a commentator. I just thought this was well succinctly put from John Stott. Here is what about Jesus' counsel to uh, Laodicea. Here is welcome news for naked, blind beggars. They're poor, but Christ has gold. They're naked but Christ has clothes. They are blind, but Christ has eye salve. Let them no longer trust in their banks and their medicinal eye powders and their clothing factories. Let them come to Christ. He can enrich their poverty. He can clothe their nakedness. He can heal their blindness. He can open their eyes to perceive a spiritual world of which they had never dreamed. He can cover their sin and shame and make them fit to partake of the inheritance of the saints in light. He can enrich the man with life abundant. And the he, he, he over there, over and over there is Christ. So Christ says to his prideful, proud, blind, pitiable church, buy from me. And it begs the question, how much does it cost? How much, Jesus? For what we can have only in you, how much does it cost? You just told us we're spiritually poor, we're bankrupt. How much is this going to cost? His answer, it costs more than you will ever be able to pay in 10,000 lifetimes. But I've paid it all. You would never be able to afford what you come and buy from me and what I will give to you, you would never, ever in a million lifetimes be able to afford it. But I've paid it all. And that was the song we just sang. 
the song we just sang. Verse 3 of the song, For nothing good have I whereby thy grace to claim. There's nothing I have to claim your grace. Uh, Lord, here, here, here's this. Might I have that white garment? Um, here, Jesus, might I have that eye salve? Uh, here, Jesus, might I have those eternal riches? You can't afford it. Nothing good have I whereby thy grace to claim. I'll wash yet, I'll wash my garments white in the blood of Calvary's lamb. I, I don't have anything to claim it, but I'm going to wash my garments there. The chorus. How? Chorus. Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. That's through his life, his death, his resurrection. He took our pride, our sin, our unbelief, and he paid the penalty for it upon the cross. God poured out all of his wrath that would have been upon me for all of my pride on Christ at the cross. Christ drank the cup of God's wrath to the last. There's nothing left. And Christ rose again in victory over it. And there Christ purchased for us what he says, you can only get through me. And I was thinking about that song this week. There's a reason we sang it right before the sermon. Jesus paid it all, and then what? All to him I owe. Which is why Jesus is walking around the church at Laodicea. He paid it all for his church. He has every right to expect because of who he is and what he's done that he is everything. That we're looking to him for the forgiveness of sins, past, present, and future, that we're looking to him for. He has every right to expect it. And he tastes of the church at Laodicea. There's no refreshment there, no blessing, no joy in me. You've become so proud, so self-sufficient. Oh, I heard you sang songs. You gave a nod to me. You thanked me for getting the ball rolling. I paid it all. And out of your thanksgiving to me, we're not paying Jesus back. You can't do that. We couldn't do that in a million lifetimes. Out of the overflow of our gratitude, out of the sense of our neediness, our hopelessness, that, man, I've been given forgiveness of sins. I've been given eternal riches. I've been given the promise of, of, of new eyes. The blinders have been taken off. I never could have had any. Jesus has paid it all for me out of gratitude. All to you. I look to you. I owe and give you everything. And that's what was lacking in the church at Laodicea. It costs us, we owe everything because it costs Jesus everything. Not paying him back in gratitude, in thanksgiving, in humility, realizing that even on my best day, my most spiritual, my most religious, my most faithful, and be careful using that language because we don't get that far into those things. My hope is always in Jesus. This is what Jesus is looking for. This is why Jesus wants to spit them out. He knows he's worthy of our all. He is. I totally understand. Listen, I come from a seminary. There's parts of me that years ago I would 
cringe at the direction the church has gone in this capacity. Man, you've oversimplified everything by making it all just Jesus. It's just, it's just, we're just looking to Jesus and hopelessness and neediness. Man, let's get to some deeper stuff. Look at, I had to repent of that. There is nothing deeper than who Jesus is and what he's done. And that all ways, in all places, in all times, in all circumstances, he is sufficient for our every need. And he expects to be everything to us. Jesus doesn't just want our things, our time, our money, our gifts. He doesn't just want our Sunday mornings. He doesn't just want us to be here listening to the seven letters of the seven churches. He wants our minds, our affections, our devotion. And I promise you, out of the overflow of that will be all those other things that we think should be the priority. And if they're not there, it has to do with right here. It sounds so simple. Yet Jesus commands them in verse 19, be zealous and repent. He's given this hearty rebuke. He's given them this wise counsel. Come and buy from me. And to accept this reproof, what they, Lord Jesus, I'm sorry. Forgive me. Restore me. Quicken me, have mercy upon me. Lord, I have, we have drifted away from you. And, and even, even though I may have drifted way over here, I've still, thank you for getting the ball rolling. I still sing the songs. I still listen to the preaching. I still pray. But Jesus says, I, I know where your heart is. Repentance is not just a phrase that we throw out this afternoon, Lord, I repent. It is a return to the king. It's person-oriented. It's a return to the centrality of Jesus Christ in all of life. Sounds so simple, doesn't it? But it's not easy to do, especially if you're a proud person, if you're an arrogant person, especially if you think that You've gone beyond this. The letter to Laodicea is a letter of stern but gracious rebuke. Wise counsel from a loving father. And then finally, a promise of fellowship. This ends marvelously in maybe an unexpected way. Verse 20 passage we've probably been familiar with most of our lives. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, Jesus says to this church at Laodicea, which is a magnificent truth in this context. Jesus has just said, I'm ready to spit you out of my my mouth. And I don't know about you, when you know somebody's angry with you, the last thing I want to do is just go, hey man, let me, let's get, yet Jesus here says in love, behold, church who's Heart has drifted from me. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, he will come in and he will sup with me. And of course, this has been used predominantly in the 20th century as an evangelistic text, but 
It's not. It's not a biblical use. It's not a faithful use of this text. He's speaking to a church. He's speaking to the redeemed here. The issue here is that the church is gathering, singing their songs, preaching their sermons, being nice to one another, enjoying fellowship with one another. And Jesus is outside the doors. He's not there in fellowship, in intimacy with his people. His very people who at one time in their life have professed faith in him. But they become so self-sufficient, they, ah, we don't need him. Now again, nobody would ever say that. But that's kind of the gist. Ah, we've moved beyond it. It's a gracious, gracious promise of our God who says, listen, you've drifted from me after I paid it all and all to me you owe. Not payback, ingratitude, clinging to me, walking with me, looking to me day after day after day in every circumstance. I want to spit you out of my mouth because I'm disgusted by what I see. I know my worth. I know my value. I know I died to be central in all of life. But here's my grace and my mercy. I'm outside the door. I haven't forsaken you. Somebody this morning in their prayer time prayed, we thank you, God, that you never forsake your people. And here is exhibit A of that. If Jesus had any any right to forsake a people, Laodicea, hey, appreciate it, done with you guys. He doesn't do it. Here he comes. He says, I've tasted. I'm not there in your midst, but I'm outside the door. Are you hungry for me to come back in yet? And the question for us this morning, as these letters are written to every church, what taste does Jesus get from Covenant Life Church? As he walks in our midst, Jesus asking, I wonder what taste I'll get from Freddie Sanchez's heart today. I wonder what taste I'll get from Marcy Lee's heart today. I wonder what taste I'm going to get from Kimball Jones's heart today, and so on and so forth. You fill in the blank. He's moving in our midst. He's tasting, testing the atmosphere, the vibrations that come from us, our attitudes, where our hearts are, where our thoughts are, our engagements, how actively we are participating in things this morning. And he says, in mercy and grace, the door knocking. If your heart is drifted from me, won't you be zealous and repent and open the door? Again, this is not a salvation text here. This is not an invitation to salvation. Jesus kicked that door down a long time ago. This is among his people. So how do we do this? If you sense this lukewarmness in your own heart, you got to get to the root of the issue. Lukewarmness will not be satisfied this day, this week, by you being more earnest in your activity or in your affections or in your emotions. Or in a few minutes, we're going to sing a wonderful song, wonderful song in just a minute. It's going to be new to us. But lukewarmness is dealt with by getting to the root of the issue 
the pride that's there, the pride that has drifted away from your king. So how do we deal? You go home this afternoon. You confess your pride. And I say your, I'm, not, I'm throwing a broad blanket out there. This applies where it applies. I have no idea. I got my own applications I'm dealing with. You go home, you confess your pride. You admit your neediness. You confess the self-sufficiency. You confess, you believe you've gotten to a place of capability. And maybe you've not used the terminology of, I've gone above and beyond this. But your actions and your emotions and your affections, it, it, it spells it out for you. You go, you confess that. You repent. With words, yes, but words can be empty if not for a heart that returns back to Jesus Christ. And in returning to Jesus Christ, what? Throws the door open because he's graciously knocking and saying, hey, I haven't forsaken you, you forsook me. And maybe you've been religious and moral and all these, but it's about me. I'm looking for the centrality of me to all of life. You come back to him, you throw open those doors, and this week you devote yourself to the pursuit of Christ to his centrality in all things, the good, the bad, the ugly. You cling to him, you hope in him, you rejoice in him, you, you devote yourself to maybe the study of some aspect of Jesus that you've never thought of before, but you know it's there, it's for your good, to bring it to bear in a way that maybe you've never seen Jesus practical you to you before, but he is, you devote yourself to it. You devote yourself to his word. You devote yourself to fellowship with him in prayer. You throw open the door and you throw your arms around a person. Jesus Christ. If our king is so gracious to be knocking at the door this morning, in spite of the fact that maybe we're lukewarm to him, who in their right mind would be so prideful as to keep that door shut? He who has ears to hear, may he hear what the Spirit of Christ says to his church.